All right. So this morning we are going to be continuing our journey through the book of Nehemiah. Um, so this is actually our fifth week studying Nehemiah. It hasn't been all consecutive weeks, but this is our fifth Sunday in Nehemiah. And so far we've covered, so we've, we've done four weeks. This is the fifth one, and we've covered five chapters uh, of Nehemiah. And there's 13 chapters total in Nehemiah, but I just want to let you know right now that we're not going to be continuing at that pace of barely more than a chapter a week. Um, we just have one more week after this planned uh, for Nehemiah, because uh, even though technically we're not even halfway through the book, uh, but there's really not a whole lot left to cover in, in the story of, of what actually happens. And so today we're going to cover quite a lot of ground in terms of, of chapters, and we're going to start in chapter 6. Uh, but first, let's do a, just a quick recap of what we've read so far. So the, first of all, the main character in Nehemiah is Nehemiah. He is a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of the Persian Empire uh, during a time when the Jewish people were transitioning from being in exile and returning to their ancestors' homeland and rebuilding and, and resettling in and around the city of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah, he got permission from the king to leave his post temporarily and to go to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city. The temple had been rebuilt and dedicated, we read about that in Ezra, but the rest of the city itself was in ruins. And Nehemiah, he just couldn't live with that. So he journeyed to Jerusalem with the king's blessing, and he's been leading the efforts of rebuilding the walls and the gates of the city. And so far, we've seen that he's been a pretty great example of godly leadership. He's shown that he trusts in God, and he shows wisdom and discretion in how he handles himself in various stressful situations. And he's shown that his life is just saturated in prayer. Everything, every situation he's in, he goes to God in prayer, acknowledging you know, God's presence and power and sovereignty. And you know, some of his prayers are maybe better models than others to base our prayers on. So it's not that all of his prayers are perfect, but the fact that he recognizes the importance of prayer and does go to God uh, is, is really cool. And he, he trusts in God's power and sovereignty while also acknowledging his own role. And, you know, he's a willing participant, a, a worker in, in God's plan. And so we've seen how trusting God doesn't mean just expecting him to do all the work and do everything for you. So Nehemiah became part of the solution. And then we talked about last week, or Mike, Mike brought us through how he ran into some opposition. Uh, those guys, Sanballat and Tobiah and, and Geshem, they really got ticked off when they heard about the Jews rebuilding Jerusalem. They did not like that. So they, they mocked and insulted the workers, and they plotted against them to kill them, even. But the Jews were able to learn about their enemies' schemes, and they responded in, in two ways. First, they prayed to God. And second, they stationed guards around the city, and they, they prepared themselves so that they were ready at all times to defend themselves. So they worked literally with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And then they continued to pray. So again, they, they put their faith in God while also taking responsibility for their own actions and making every reasonable effort to be prepared to defend themselves while still continuing to do the work they were called to. And last week, Mike made the point that we should expect opposition and problems when we engage in the work of God. 
And when we face that opposition, that doesn't mean the work stops, and nor does it mean we completely ignore the opposition. You know, we trust God and we address the opposition appropriately with not stooping to their level. They didn't just go and hurl insults back at them. Uh, they just prepared themselves to defend themselves uh, with, with wisdom and grace. We, we address opposition, not ignore it, but then continue to do the work that God has set before us. So that brought us, Mike um, got us to the end of chapter 5 last week. And we found another type of opposition or a setback in chapter 5 as well, which was this time not from opposition from the outside, but from the inside, from social injustice that was plaguing them from, from within. They were not treating each other like brothers and sisters like they should, like God's people should. So Nehemiah led reform in that, on that front among the people in chapter 5, and they were convicted of their sin, and, and they praised God uh, for it. And it was a great reminder that, you know, confession and repentance is a gift from God. We're going to explore that a little bit more today. Um, that when, you know, God shows us sin in our life, we have this great gift of being able to confess and repent of that sin and praise God for it. What follows confession and repentance should always be joy and praise, not, not a continuing lingering sense of guilt because gratitude and peace um, is what we should be living in in light of God's forgiveness and mercy. So we're getting to chapter 6 now, and we're going to find that the opposition and conflict is not quite over yet. So we're going to read through a little bit more of the story in chapter 6. The focus returns now to the construction of the wall. So you had some opposition, and then you had people repenting of how they were treating each other, uh, and now we're going back to the construction of the wall. Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read first a few verses here. When Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, those three guys again, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that no gap was left in it, though at the time I had not installed the doors in the city gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me a message. Come, let's meet together in the villages of the Ono Valley. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> they were planning to harm me. I mean, how fitting is that? The oh no, Valley. <laughs> Sorry. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing important work and cannot come down. Why should the work cease when it, while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same proposal and I gave them the same reply. Sanballat sent me this me the same message a fifth time by his aide who had an open letter in his hand. That's implying that, you know, it's not a sealed letter, it's open. So that means a lot of people could read it. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem agrees, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. This is the reason you are building the wall. According to these reports, you are to become their king, and have even set up the prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim on your behalf, there is a king in Judah. These rumors will be heard by the king, so come, let's confer together. <laughs> and I replied to him, there is nothing to these rumors you are spreading. You are inventing them in your own mind. For they were all trying to intimidate us, saying they will drop their hands from the work and it will never be finished. But now, my God, strengthen my hands. So Sanballat and Tobiah, they've kind of changed their strategy up a little bit here. They're not planning a full-on assault to, to kill him now. They're, they're trying to intimidate Nehemiah himself. So they're, they're, first, they're trying just to get him to meet up with him, to trap him, but he realizes it's a trap. 
but they're persistent, aren't they? Four times they try sending this letter to Nehemiah, and then when that doesn't work, basically what Samballot's doing is trying to blackmail him, saying these, these rumors are going to reach the king unless you confer with us, meet up with us, and maybe, you know, maybe these rumors won't reach the king. They're threatening him with these empty, false rumors. And remember that these Jews who returned from exile, and Nehemiah himself, while they're rebuilding their city, they are still under Persian rule. They're still part of the, the Persian empire, and Nehemiah himself is still under the direct employee of the king. He's the cupbearer, and the king's expecting him to come back and return to his position at some point. So these rumors that Sanballat came up with were that the Jews planned to rebel against the king of Persia, and that Nehemiah wanted to become his own king, and so these were questioning their motives for, for building. Basically threatening to accuse Nehemiah of treason is, is what it was. And if you remember, very similar accusations are what did stop the building of the, the, or the construction of Jerusalem back in Ezra chapter 4. There was a very similar situation. Rumors were started that they wanted to rebel, and that did actually put a, a halt to the construction for quite some time. But Nehemiah, he basically just shrugged these rumors off, said, nope, that's not true. You're inventing these rumors in your own mind. And instead of dropping his hands from the work like they expected them to do, Nehemiah doubled down on his, on his efforts. But the opposition, the intimidation, it continued. There's one more tactic they tried, and I want to read this together to you because it's, it's pretty interesting. So we're just going to continue in chapter 6, starting in verse 10. It says, and this is Nehemiah speaking again, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was restricted to his house. He said, let's meet at the house of God inside the temple. Let's shut the temple doors because they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. But I said, should a man like me run away? How can someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him because of the prophecy he spoke against me. Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He was hired so that I would be intimidated, do as he suggested, sin, and get a bad reputation in order that they could discredit me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they have done, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. It's interesting. We don't really know what happened with Noadiah. There's obviously even more to the story that isn't even here. Uh, that's the only place Noadiah is, is mentioned, I believe. But we see here how Tobiah and Samballot were getting really sneaky at this point. And if you want to give them credit for anything, it's that, you know, they were very persistent and they were very determined to see Nehemiah fail. So at this point, they resorted to hiring other people, Nehemiah's own people, to try to get to Nehemiah rather than approaching him themselves. They realize that's not going to work. So they're trying to get to him through other people who Nehemiah should have been able to trust. In this case, it's Shemaiah. And we don't really know anything else other than, you know, about Shemaiah, other than that Sanballat and Tobiah got to him somehow, and he's now trying to set a trap for Nehemiah. Basically, he goes to Nehemiah, or Nehemiah goes to him, and he says, Nehemiah, your enemies are coming tonight to kill you. Let's go hide in the temple and lock the doors. They won't be able to get us in there. And Nehemiah sees a problem with that. What's the problem with that? Nehemiah was familiar enough with the law of Moses to know 
that there's a big problem with that. And we can see that in Numbers uh, chapter 18, verse 7 says this. And this is talking to you know, the Levites and assigning them the priestly duties. God is saying, but you and your sons will carry out your priestly responsibilities for everything concerning the altar and for what is inside the curtain. And you will do that work. I am giving you the work of the priesthood as a gift, but an unauthorized person who goes near the sanctuary will be put to death. It's saying here that if anyone other than the authorized Levites, the priests who've been assigned to the temple to take care of the temple, anyone other than them who entered it could be executed for it. And Nehemiah was not a priest. He would have been an unauthorized person, to, and he knew that. So he saw through Shemaiah's you know, quote-unquote prophecy and realized it was just another trap that was being set for him. And this time, this trap was targeting Nehemiah's and a sense of self-preservation, saying, you know, you're going to die if you don't do this. And it was wrapped up in this whole guise of, of religious context. Shemaiah is evidently supposed to be some kind of a man of God, and he has some kind of religious influence here. And he's trying to use that influence to trick Nehemiah into sinning, which is result, would result at least in a bad reputation, if not even being executed for it. People using religious influence uh, in a bad way never happens these days, does it? Whether it's, you know, leaders or influencers or just even friends and, and family, there may be times when the context of religion is used to manipulate people or to justify sin, even. And that's why it's so important to know the Word of God for yourself and to know the truth and, and measure the words of anyone else, myself included, uh, up against the words of God. And that, that doesn't mean uh, that you should always be suspicious and jaded towards everyone all the time. It's important to have people in our lives who we know we can trust and trust in their motives and intentions. But even the most trustworthy people with the best intentions are still imperfect humans uh, and sinful humans. So it's crucial that even, though, even when we do have people we, we trust, that our faith is never rooted in any one person's leadership or, or mentorship or friendship. Those are wonderful things, and they, they help us grow in our faith, but they are not the root of our faith. Our faith is rooted in who God is and the truth of Scripture and the message of the gospel. We, those are our foundation. And Nehemiah had a faith that was rooted in the knowledge of God's word, and as a result, he was not swayed by this, these manipulative words of Shemaiah, someone who claimed to be sent by God, with a word from God, Nehemiah heard his advice and said, yeah, I know God, and he didn't send you. And I think that's just a really cool moment, uh, another great example of Nehemiah's wisdom in navigating all of this, this conflict. All right, so let's keep reading. In the last few verses of chapter 6 here, kind of wrap up this section of the narrative. Starting in verse 15, Nehemiah 6, the wall was completed in 52 days on the 25th day of the month, Elul. When all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. During those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, for many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son Jehonan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Barakiah. These nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me, and they reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. 
So <laughs> verse 15, you know, despite all the years really of setbacks and then the relentless opposition that they faced when they started rebuilding, the wall is finally finished. And it only took 52 days from when they actually started here, which I think, you know, it's a pretty long project, but I think it's still impressive that they were able to finish it in that amount of time. My favorite part of this, this might even be my favorite verse in the whole book of Nehemiah, is chapter 6, verse 16. It says, when all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. Even their enemies had to acknowledge and admit that the Jews' success was, was accomplished. It was through the people's hard work, yes, but it was by God's power that the task was accomplished. And this was all made all the more evident because of all the opposition they faced. It seemed so insurmountable that it had to have been because of God's hand and God's power and protection that they were able to succeed. And that may be one reason that God allows for opposition at times, because it ultimately results in people being pointed to him and his hand in the work and acknowledging him. And in this case, all the intimidation attempts backfired, and the intimidators became the intimidated. I'm not sure if intimidators is a word, but the ones who were intimidating became the intimidated. And that wraps up chapter 6. The wall is finished. Ah, that's, that's great, but we're still not even halfway through the book. So what's the whole rest of the book about? You know, if Nehemiah is about, you know, rebuilding the wall and everything, why do we still have seven more chapters? Well, part of it, so like chapter 7 is just a documentation of all the exiles who returned, and we're not going to read through all that today. Um, but it is interesting to note they still couldn't totally let their guard down. So Nehemiah did continue to kind of help organize and appoint people to maintain their defenses and, and keep the gates and everything. But I'm going to skip down to the end of chapter 7 um, and read. We had enough names for a while a couple weeks ago, so I'm going to skip through um, chapter 7 and read through some of chapter 8 here. Actually, the very last, it's weird how the chapter is, is broken up, but the last part of the last verse of chapter 7 is really the beginning of the first paragraph of chapter 8. So I'm going to start reading there. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. This is fun because this is our old friend Ezra from the last book. He's making kind of a cameo appearance here. This is the same Ezra. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon, before the men, the women, and all of those who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The, the scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. A bunch of people stood beside him on his right, and to his left were another bunch of people. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. Then they knelt low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
a bunch of people who were Levites explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. And all the people began to eat and drink and send portions and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. All right, I think this passage, this section is really cool, and it's, it's leading up to a climax in the story that is far more significant than just the wall being finished. The people are gathered at the water gate, and the old priest Ezra comes out, and he stands up in front of everyone. He unrolls the scroll. I, the CSB translates it, he, he opened the book, but really it says he, there were no such thing as books. He unrolled the scroll, and he reads from the law of Moses from dawn until noon. <laughs> from dawn until noon is a pretty long time. But the people listened intently. Now, I'm only speaking from 11 till maybe not even. But the people listened intently. <laughs> and notice how, you know, they, they worshiped God with their whole body. You know, they, they stood up to hear God's word, which was the tradition. Anytime God's word was read, the people would stand. And they lifted their hands and said, Amen. They, they knelt down to worship God with their faces to the ground. The people heard and they understood. And they had a couple of reactions. They had two reactions. One was to worship God. As through the reading of the law, they were faced with the reality of who God is. They worshiped him. And the second reaction was to weep and to mourn as they were faced with who they were and their own failure and their, their sin. The law revealed how they and their ancestors had not honored the covenant that was made with God. Really, the marriage vows with God, and, and it, it revealed the adultery of their hearts. And rightly so, when they realized that, it made them sad. So their reactions were to worship God and to, to weep and to mourn because of their sin. Seems like a good response, right? But the leaders told them, hey, well, no, don't cry, don't grieve, party. <laughs> What's up with that? Nehemiah, Ezra, all of these leaders are saying, no, you know, this day is holy to Yahweh your God. So why aren't they encouraging, you know, that broken and contrite heart that leads to repentance and renewal? They say, no, be joyful and celebrate and eat good food and drink good um, drink and, and celebrate. When they say this day is holy to Yahweh your God, what do they mean by that? Well, it's not a Sabbath day. It's the first day of the week. But it's the first day of the seventh month, which falls during their New Year celebration. And they were commanded by God to celebrate the New Year with joy and feasting, and they were commanded to observe this day and, and this whole 
time period of the beginning of the new year with joy and celebration, partying. So it's actually pretty ironic that people want to mourn their sin, but they would just be continuing to add to their sin if they were to mourn their sin because God commanded them to be joyful on this day. So there's going to come a time later for solemn reflection, uh, but they're first going to observe the festivals and, and feast with joy like they were told to. So I think it's kind of funny and kind of ironic that they want to grieve their sin. And, well, no, we will sin more if we grieve than if we observe what God told us to do, which is to be joyful. So let's be joyful now and be sad later. So that's, that's what they do. Uh, let's finish reading chapter 8. It shows one way in which they observed the law. Starting in verse 13, it says, On the second day, so this is the next day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters just as it is written. So the people went out, brought back branches, and made shelters for themselves on each of their roof rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate, and the square by the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was a tremendous joy. Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. All right, so they figured out as part of Ezra reading the law to them, hey, you know, we're supposed to be doing this festival of shelters thing, and they actually did it. it like, oh, this falls right now. Like, this is when we're supposed to be having this festival. So they did it. And again, this, you know, this celebration was part of the, the new year. And the new year for the Jews began, their calendar began a new calendar when they were brought out of Egypt, when they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. And that was the start of their year. That was part of their whole you know, agreement with God from the very beginning, was that was when they were going to celebrate their new year to remember God bringing them out of Egypt. And the festival of shelters might sound kind of weird they, to build basically tents on top of your house and live there for a week. What, what's up with that? Uh, because it was part of the New Year celebration, this was meant to remind them of how their ancestors had lived in tents uh, in the desert as they were traveling um, and wandering the wilderness between being in Egypt and the land that God had promised them. So this, this festival of shelters had a purpose behind it, and it was reminding them of everything that they had just read in the law. And meanwhile, you know, Ezra is continuing to read out of the law every day for seven days. <laughs> and, but now, you know, we have the people, they've been partying, they've, there's this great joy, great celebration that hasn't been seen in generations, but they still have to deal with this issue of their sin. Their, their broken vows, the, the fractured relationship between them and God. So they're now going to address that in chapter 9. Let's read the first bit of, of chapter 9. On the 24th day of this month, 
the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. It was back to, to grieving and mourning. And those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. While they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day and spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord their God. Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani stood on the raised platform built for the Levites and cried out loudly to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, a bunch of people, said, Stand up! Blessed be the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. And then the rest of chapter 9 goes on and on and on with this prayer of penance and confession and praise and worship. It's really quite beautiful. And I, I was very tempted to read through the whole thing this morning. But it is very long, uh, and I decided it would be more beneficial uh, if you have time to just read through it yourself and kind of sit with it. It's one of those, it's really beautiful. It looks similar to something you'd find in the Psalms. You know, it's very poetic. Um, but it is long. So when you have a few minutes to sit with it, maybe with a cup of coffee, it's one of those, you know, you might be familiar with the Psalms, but then not expect to find this long piece of poetry in the middle of Nehemiah. So it's one that I wasn't super familiar with, but was really cool to read through a couple times uh, this past week. So I definitely encourage you to do that. I'm not going to read it all right now. I did. I, <laughs> I put it into my notes, and I can, when I put scripture or anything, as I'm typing out my notes, it tells me how long it's going to, how long I'm, I'm going to be speaking, it's, it's best guess, and so I wanted just to see how long it would be, and it was like over 12 minutes added just to read through that passage, so I was like, oh, I'll, I'll skip it. Not that it would be a bad thing, but just think it, yeah, it would be more beneficial to be able to see it yourself, I think. So, but what it does in this prayer, it, it acknowledges God's faithfulness and God's mercy to the people, and, and they confess their history of rebellion against them. And notice they confess, it says, their sins and the sins of their ancestors, the iniquities of their ancestors. They realize we're just the newest in a long line of, of failures. And all of this culminates towards the end of chapter 9 in what I think is really the climactic moment of the story. And it's their renewal of their sacred vows to God and to each other. And verse 38 of chapter 9 says, in view of all this, in view of all of that long prayer of who God is and how they've messed up, in view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. And then chapter, goes, uh, chapter 10 goes on to document everyone who's seals were put on this legal document. Basically, everyone who signed their name saying, I agree to this. I'm part of this vow. They put their, their seal on it. And then after that, it, chapter 10 goes through some of the details of that vow, what they were promising to do for God and, and for each other moving forward. And then, you know, the next couple chapters, we get a whole bunch more names documenting the families who stayed in Jerusalem uh, and, you know, kind of to settle there. And don't worry, I'm not going to read through all those either. So for today, I just want us to dwell 
for a moment on what took place back in chapters 8 and 9. Because what happened there really just illustrates the power of God's word to convict people's hearts. And in their case, it was specifically the law which convicted their hearts. It says over and over again, Ezra read from the books of the law. And I just want to talk about that word for a little bit, a couple minutes. Because that word law, we see in pretty much any English translation, you'll see that word law used um, all over the place. And does anyone know what the Hebrew word is that it's referring to there? I heard someone say it. Torah. Yeah, Torah. You've probably heard that word, Torah. Maybe not. Maybe you didn't know that's what it meant. But anytime you see the word law, for the most part, in the Old Testament, the word law is referring to the Torah. The Torah included all five books of Moses. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. (laughs) But the way they thought about Torah, you know, the law isn't really a perfect translation because, especially because of the way that we think about law in our society. Because Torah, when you think about those books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, a lot of that is what we would categorize as narrative, right? And then we would say, well, part of that is law and part of it is narrative. But for them, it was all just Torah, all of it, including the narrative. It's not a legal document. It's not organized like a legal document. Like, if I were to ask you about the laws of our country or our state or even local laws, you would point me to, you know, maybe a website or a library somewhere where I could look up specific index of of laws with sections and headings and numbers, and you can reference a specific piece of the law. The Torah is not organized into categories like that. It does have commandments and ordinances and detailed instructions for worship and festivals and things, and for civil issues and penalties, but all of those appear organized as part of a larger story, not as what we would think of as a legal document. So another way you'll see the word Torah translated um, sometimes is as the word instructions or teachings. And I, I have found for me that thinking about Torah as, as God's teaching, not just God's law, because we, we just, in our English modern society, we pigeonhole law as being a specific thing. But the Torah is all of God's teachings, including what we categorize as law, and it fits into the whole narrative. So I, yeah, it, thinking about the Torah as teaching. So Ezra was reading from the teachings of God. When you do look at specific commandments, you know, what we would call the law, the, the point was not necessarily to provide guidelines for every possible scenario in life, which is how we approach law, right? If there's not a law for it, then you can't convict someone. Uh, you can't take legal action unless there's legal precedent and laws. that ha- There has to be laws written out for every possible scenario in order for anyone to be able to do anything legally, to act on it legally. That's how we approach law. And we hire lawyers because of that, because, you know, we, we can't possibly spend time, uh, unless any of you is a lawyer, I don't think so. Um, but for those of us who don't understand every letter of the law, we have to hire someone who spends more time than we could to understand every letter of the law. That's not how they thought about law in the ancient world. I mean, even in other, um, other areas in the, in the ancient Mideast, we look at their, their neighbor's and when we read through Leviticus, you know, it might seem very long and repetitive, but when you think about it, it's really pretty short for a legal document. If you can imagine trying to read 
through all the laws that govern our nation, that would take way longer than reading Leviticus, I promise you, let alone, you know, state and local laws. And it's because, again, their approach to law was, was different uh, from ours in several ways. It wasn't thought of as comprehensive and meant to, to handle every scenario, but as principles, which then could be extrapolated to other scenarios. So if there was a law about a cow, that law might also apply to a pig, and they didn't have to actually write that out, whereas in our society, we would actually have to write that out. So just even culturally, from a cultural perspective, the way they thought about law was different. But then God's law is special and unique because it wasn't just meant to keep people managed or to keep people at peace with each other. It does address specific behavioral issues and social issues but it points out things that are ultimately symptomatic of corrupted hearts. So God's law functions not just to condemn certain actions or to manage behaviors, but to convict of the heart issues, which then lead to destructive behaviors. When we read the law in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know, it provides certain situational examples of how a community of God followers should act in, in their context in that time. Those deep, the very specific details of some of those examples are very specific to their culture at that time. However, all of it stems from root issues that apply to every culture at every time. Which is why when Jesus started teaching about the law, from the law, he was using it to address issues of the heart, like hatred and lust and pride. That's why, you know, when he was asked, well, which law is the most important one? He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. He was able to boil all of the law down to love God and love your neighbor. And ultimately, if we think about every sin or destructive behavior in our lives, it's like the fruit on the branch of a tree. And you can trace that fruit back down through the branches, down through the trunk, and into the roots of the ground where that fruit ultimately sprung from. The hearts and minds, our hearts and our minds, are the roots of all of our actions. And if you, you know, love God and love your neighbor, those, that's like the very bottom of the root, the deepest root. If you look through God's teachings, you can kind of extend that out a little bit. Everything comes out of loving God and loving others, loving your neighbor as yourself. If you trace that up just a little bit, we can kind of branch out and maybe notice some key branches uh, that are things that God really cares about. Things like being loyal to God. That's kind of the number one thing. But then also the sanctity of human life and sexual morality and social justice. These things are all important to God. So in that regard, you know, God's law or his teachings that we have in the Pentateuch, the first five books, even ones that, even areas that are not as culturally relevant to us or may seem boring to us, it's still all part of God's teachings and they still point us to him and it reveals corruption in our hearts, even if it manifests in maybe still different ways. And Lord willing, we will be you know, exploring this concept more in a few weeks when we do actually get to Matthew and really dig into how Jesus interpreted the law. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. But here in Nehemiah, it's really cool just to see this example of when the Jewish people actually got it right. They heard the teachings of God and they responded with worship 
in light of the reality of who God is, and confession and repentance in light of the reality of who they were. And I think the most climactic moment of the book, again, is not the finishing the wall, but of their vow renewal that symbolized their restored relationship with him and with each other. And I think that's really cool. And that's where I'm going to leave us for today. And then hopefully next week, Mike will wrap up the book of Nehemiah with us because the story's not quite over just yet. There's still a little bit more uh, to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the gift of your word and the power of your word to convict our hearts and to diagnose issues in our hearts. I just pray that you would help us to identify any areas in our life where there may be behaviors, thoughts, actions, attitudes that are not honoring to you, and to realize that, yes, you, you want us to modify those behaviors, but ultimately, we know that behavior modification is not the solution to the problem, because those problems, those actions, those behaviors are not really the problem. The problem is our hearts and our desires and our motives and our our minds. So I just pray that you would renew our minds today, God, and, and every day, that you would create in us clean hearts, that we would have a desire to worship you, to know you, to be with you, and to honor you, and that everything we do and say would flow from that, that you would fill us with your spirit, and that we would be, that the fruit of your spirit would be evident in our lives to each other, living as as brothers and sisters, and to all those around us who we interact with, that we'd be bearing the fruit of the spirit, and that you would minister to our hearts and our minds so that our actions and thoughts and behaviors would be honoring to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you very much. I'm actually not sure with Sunday school um, what time they were planning on ending. So maybe they're done. Maybe they're not. But an hour, so noon. So I have ten more minutes. I can read through. I can read through the prayer. <laughs> yeah, don't forget your children are in Sunday school. <laughs> Well, we have 10 minutes to hang out and and fellowship that.